Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. Welcome everybody to the South by Southwest panel on how sports washing is changing the game. My name is Karim Zidane and I'm an investigative journalist covering the intersection of sports and politics for outlets such as The Guardian and Right Wing Watch. Joining us on the panel are legendary chess grandmaster and Human Rights Foundation chairman Gary Kasparov, Uyghur American activist and Human Rights Foundation Freedom Fellow Erati Kashgari, as well as Miguel Delaney, chief football writer at The Independent. Now, Gary, sports washing is a term coined by Amnesty International to describe authoritarian regimes using sports to uh, manipulate perception and cleanse um, human rights atrocities, essentially whitewashing them. While the term is new, the process is not. Many dictators have used this in the past and continue to do so in modern times. The Soviet Union is one of the most infamous examples of sports washing in the 20th centuries, whether it be you know, chess tournaments, the Olympic Games, football, wrestling... My question for you is, how has this evolved in Putin's Russia in modern times? Oh, thank you very much uh, for this uh, question, because I think we should uh, work on the definition, just not to get our audience confused. Um, it's force washing is not money laundering. It's, it's, uh, it's similar, but it's, it's, it's more sophisticated. And uh, you pointed out at the, at the past experience, uh, you mentioned Soviet Union, but we can also recall the experience of Nazi Germany organizing Berlin Olympics in 1936. Uh, dictators always loved sport as a way to promote their agenda and to portray them, you know, just in, uh, as, as, as popular, as strong leaders, both for domestic purposes, but also internationally to, to cleanse their names. And the uh, Soviet Union extended this, this practice. I experienced it with uh, FIDE, International Chess Federation, that had been under Soviet control for, for, for ages. Uh, it's still under Russian KGB control to, today as we speak. Uh, but we today, I guess we're covering something else, something it's, it's even more sophisticated because it's not about uh, using um, influence in the international organizations. It's about um, finding way by using money uh, from this dictatorship to um, uh, uh, infiltrate the society in the free countries. So uh, it's like it's, it's, you may say it's a step down from international organizations to local uh, sports club, but actually it's, it's, I would say, in terms of buying influence, it's, it's a step up. And uh, Putin Russia pioneered uh, this approach. Um, uh, Roman Abramovich, one of the closest Putin's allies, many called, you know, one of the Putin's wallets, um, started it. Started this uh, program process uh, concept by buying a Chelsea club, and Chelsea club is not just a, a football club. It's a it's a symbol. It's a, it's a, it's a, an institution that was there virtually forever. You know, as long as you know, just it's a, we remember we remember soccer, and and it had massive following. And through Chelsea and through all uh, people connected to Chelsea and through, of course, TV and, 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 and competitions where Chelsea took part, Abramovich you know, managed to you know, incorporate himself and his buddies into the British society. And uh, we saw that, you know, this, this example that was successful uh, uh, had many, many followers and more Russians did it. And we know that now it's, it's no longer, you know, uh, 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 Russian prerogatives. We saw, we saw Saudis, for instance, trying to buy Newcastle. So it's a new phenomenon. 
And I think it's just as we, we, we hopefully today we can we can help people to understand how this this uh, aggressive uh, 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 takeover uh, threatens the uh, the very fabric of the of the free of the society in in the free world because it seems like you know very innocuous. Okay, so what's a big deal? They have the football club, basketball club, uh, uh, I mean baseball team, whatever. Uh, but it's not that simple, you know. They 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 corrupt. Um, societies in, in societies from within, and and make them make them uh, um, less um, sensitive to to the human rights violations and to other crimes committed to the money that have been that had been used to 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 uh, to buy these institutions. No, that absolutely makes sense, and it's an extremely subtle uh, soft power tactic as well that a lot of people you know look over and assume is not a significant one so i agree with you entirely gary miguel now you've reported on russia's involvement in sports washing and football mainly through uh, you know oligarch abramovich in chelsea can you go into that in a lot more detail explaining the significance of it and maybe give us a few more examples to the audience of of sports washing in football right now yeah i mean i was just thinking as gary was talking now we're talking about the history of it and it probably goes back much further even than kind of the Soviet Union of the 20th century. And that you could even argue that the first example of sports washing was basically uh, Roman gladiatorial games and kind of bread and circuses. And, and I, I, it's probably not coincidental then that for the 1936 Olympics, which is really probably the, the first huge example of what we're talking about, uh, they use Roman pageantry for that. But I think when, when I mean, there are so many examples of states like that using Olympic Games or World Cups. But I think when they go to own a football club or a sporting institution in that way, it takes it up a level. Uh, and Because I, I think it goes so much deeper. And really, I think uh, Gary used the term there. They, it's about inserting a country or a state or a regime into the very social fabric of, uh, of everything around a football club. Because, uh, again, as Gary said, I mean, we're... We're not just talking football teams. We're talking about social institutions that have been the centre of their kind of their local area for 120 years or longer, with with all sorts of connected emotions and uh, and social links through that. And it's it's this basically that you know when sports washing is at its most insidious that they're tapping into. I mean, I, I think well, in some of the reports I've done with this, you know, I've had various experts. Uh, I I think it was uh, Dr. Christian Ulrichsen who told me that it was um, it, it's basically about trying to portray themselves as benevolent accessories to things we've been enjoying for, for years, if not centuries. And it's about the most prominent examples. And I think, I mean, Abramovich probably moved the dial in terms of football club ownership in that way. It was the first huge takeover in that sense. And in terms of the kind of money involved, it, it, it just completely, it completely shifted what football was. And also helped footballs move into this, onto this fully global scale, which I, which I don't think is really comparable in any other sport, I have to say. And you only have to look at the way Premier League clubs are supported all over the world. I, th- I think it does break, go across so many borders now. And, I mean, people initially look to the financial outlay of this, but, of course, for a lot of these regimes, it's not about financial return because that's why they're pumping so much money in. It's about the kind of political capital or social capital. And so the, the real game-changer after... Uh, Abramovich was uh, Sheikh Mansour, uh, or as I think as many critics would say, Abu Dhabi, really, the state of Abu Dhabi, taking over Manchester City in 2008. Uh, and this has had 
all sorts of benefits uh, for the image of Abu Dhabi. Uh, it's helped foster business and political connections in England. You know, tr- through the ownership of Manchester City, Abu Dhabi now has built what is effectively a construction empire in the city of Manchester. And as a lot of people say, um, you know, it, it sometimes feels like social regeneration, which is what a lot of the construction was supposed to be about, doesn't go beyond the, uh, the walls of the Etihad campus. And there's another example there. The very, I mean, Arsenal aren't owned by a state in that sense, uh, but they do have a sponsorship deal with Emirates Airlines. Uh, we, uh, people in England talk about going to the Emirates Stadium so freely. So once again, you have an apparatus of a state, Emirates Airlines, becoming just you know, part of the language of football without, people, uh, without even thinking of it. Um, three years after Manchester City, Qatar bought Paris Saint-Germain. And then most, most recently, and belatedly, a lot of people would say, following on from the example of their two, of their two neighbours, in, and a lot of people would, would really link it, of course, to the, uh, the, the blockade in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia trying to buy Newcastle United. And, and what, what this is completely, it's, it's looking to tap in to the emotion the football arouses. Uh, and I, I mean, I've, I've talked to so many people on this, and, and almost the, the, the best way to put it is, it's, it's, it's very hard to ask questions, or sorry, it's very hard for people to have the mental space, and this, this is a, a totally understandable thing, I have to say, very people to have the, the mental space to question uh, a state's human rights record amid the euphoria of victory or sporting success, often the people that played, uh, waited years for. And on another level, again, this goes right up to government committees to even about the approval of arms sales. It, it's a lot easier for basically governments to, or people in authority to point to a, comp- a country in, investing in an area through, through sport um, to, to show ultimately that these are good people to do business with. And I, I think that's where the idea of the, the washing part comes in or, you know, the, uh, the, the, the image laundering in that it, it, it just, it makes them look so much more benevolent in the West and, and, and what they need kind of uh, Western interests for. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's the, they all are, you know, connected and just, you know, the same kind of operation. But still there's a slight difference between uh, Emiratis and Qataris and Saudis and Russians. Because in case, in, in, in terms of, you know, Emirati Construction Empire or uh, Qatari Airline, it still looks like business. And it is a business. They have a business interest. So they mixed, you know, as you said, you know, washing of the image, you know, presenting that's the, the, the a very different picture of, of, of the country in the eyes of the of the falls of the club. While for Russians and Saudis, there's no business. I mean, Abramovich, you know, didn't promote anything. It's all about sports washing. So again, it's a subtle difference. Yeah, just I wanted you to, to, to mention that. But of course, at the end of the day, so that's that all belongs to, to the same, the same process. Though some of them are still doing business, while others, like uh, uh, Russian oligarchs, they just, you know, invest uh, Putin's control money uh, to promote Putin's agenda with, with no, no real business behind it. In the end, I think the, the, the point stands the same with all the different countries in that uh, these, these end up being propaganda campaigns where dictatorships appear benevolent as, uh, as, as benevolent leaders. And that leads to, of course, all sorts of diplomatic strategizing is the reason it was known as sports diplomacy as well. And I think this is a great time to, to talk to Irati, who whose focus really is on, on uh, Uyghur activism and uh, China, etc. And of course, China has risen to become one of the most effective users of sports washing in the past, I'd say, over a decade now, whether we're talking the, the 2008 Summer Olympic Games, the upcoming 2022 uh, Winter Games. I mean, I can go on the, the Club World Cup and, the con- and, of course, the controversial relationship with the NBA. Now, 
Erati, can you explain to our audience why we should be paying attention to this right now? Yeah, of course. And I think it'll kind of pull from what uh, Gary and Miguel have already said in the sense of how it makes dictatorships look very benevolent, right? And um, here, if you look at this picture that I uh, provided here, it shows Xi Jinping speaking to these uh, children, uh, these young athletes. And this image itself is exactly what they benefit from it, right? This is exactly how it shows Xi Jinping is someone who's honest, who likes to work with kids, who's sweet and gives almost a fatherly figure to him. And at the same time, this man is a dictator who is in charge of essentially running a full genocide against the Uyghurs right now. And these events, when you pull them in to these dictatorships, when you pull these dictatorships into these events, these dictators, they come off as almost human. You add this sense of humanity to them and it makes it much harder for people to then react and say, hey, what they're doing is incorrect. What they're doing, uh, we need to speak up about, whether it's in business, whether it's in uh, public you know, uh, condemnations of uh, their actions, it makes it much harder and it makes it much easier easier for businessmen to go ahead uh, in the future and say, we're going to continue working with them because, look, he's not that bad of a guy and we don't want to get too political. It's really easy to use that excuse once we have this avenue of sports to make them seem more human and make them seem more relatable. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And that relates again to what Miguel was saying and what Gary was saying. Miguel, were you trying to say something? Well, just, just picking up on something Irade said there about kind of, you know, we don't want sport to be political. That's something you see a lot in this debate. And it's usually the most common counter argument. And I think, I think it's always worth addressing and stressing a point on it in that it's nonsense. Sport is inherently political. It always has been. The very organisation of sport is often political. I mean, even if you look at the way certain teams are founded, certain organizations are founded, I mean, as a clear as possible example, you only have to look at um, sport in South Africa during the apartheid era. Uh, but so, and, and just from that, from the basic organization of sport, it will always be inherently political. It will always be used um, by, by states, by people involved. And, you know, it, it's something that it's it's never going to go away and and because of its because of its social power which is itself political it will always always attract these interests unless of course there's um opposition to it or people make stands within sport which is why i think the example of the Uyghur muslims party is, is currently so powerful in that regard mm-hmm. it really shows the hypocrisy of a lot of these sports teams sorry go ahead <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I just you know, wanted to follow this uh, because I grew up in the Soviet Union and we heard it. Sports is out of politics. And I, I, I was an athlete and, and I knew that this, this was all nonsense. The big talk about, oh, we have only amateurs in the Soviet Union. Of course, we're professionals. Of course, sport was political. So it's uh, chess, chess belonged uh, to the ideological department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Because it was, it was seen as a very important tool so to prove the intellectual superiority of the Soviet uh, communism over decadent West. Um, and going back to the, to the 1936 Olympics, few people remember that, that it was not just Hitler who saw the, the value of that. It was the, the Axis powers because a decision was made in Berlin in 1936 that next Olympics, 1940, to be held in Tokyo. And 1944 in, in Mussolini's Italy, in, in Rome. So they just they saw the opportunity to use sport to, to cover up uh, their, their heinous crimes. And, uh, and the Soviet Union and China they, and Russia, Russia these days, they all look at sport as a big opportunity to not 
I'm not even sure about clearing their name, but you know, the, the changing the image, it, it's more like an angle of observation. So you, you can look at, at, you know, at the vigorous conservation camps, but you change, you know, you change the angle and the lenses, you know, show uh, Xi Jinping, you know, having kids, you know, surrounding him and having you know, a nice chat. And even, you know, if we follow this, the, the, the China NBA relations, it's not just, you know, international. They succeeded in forcing Americans to basically abandon the First Amendment. So they already had opportunities through enormous investment and through, you know, um, uh, through the very lucrative Chinese market, the opportunity to, 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 to be there to, uh, to f- force Americans to retreat on something that we all believe was a staple of American democracy. Yeah, I think uh, this the hypocrisy is uh, amazing to see, if anything. I think that the NBA situation recently with Daryl Morey had painted this perfectly, right? Um, when he spoke out and then immediately the NBA came back with one comment after another, saying how the NBA doesn't want to get involved and that the NBA wants to stay apolitical. But the NBA has been such a staple of political statements within the U.S. Matter of fact, a lot of its popularity with the NBA, a lot of support for players like LeBron um, come from the fact that they have been so outspoken. So how does it feel when LeBron is talking about equality here and then just goes to China and stays completely silent in that aspect? Is it because it's another country now that the NBA is purely an American sport and won't get involved in other countries' politics? Where does that line, where do you define that line? Uh, uh, actually, it's, it's, it's even worse than being silent. LeBron and others attacked those who wanted to raise their voice. So not that they decided to, to be neutral. They basically sided with Chinese communists. To, to attack their own uh, uh, teammates, uh, the, the NBA players and managers who tried to be vocal and to support fundamental human rights. And of course, you know, with all due respect to the problems America is facing today, the racial reckoning, there's no comparison. It doesn't come close to the genocide, open genocide that is, as we speak, happening uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the Western China. But again, it's why this whole example, I think, brings so many of the connected elements to this into to, to a head and, and, and into one area. I mean, I suppose, into, as, as regards to what you're saying with the NBA, you also have to look at the kind of even a simple example from when Mesut Ozil, the former Arsenal player, the German international of Turkish background, spoke out about, about the treatment of Uyghur Muslims. And Arsenal, his club, basically distanced themselves from the, from the comments. Uh, they, didn't do, they didn't do the same when one of his teammates, Hector Bellerin, spoke out about the Conservative Party in the UK. Um, but I, I think, I mean, even, even beyond Arsenal, there's an issue there where, where because there was, at, at the time, there was all sorts of talk about how, you know, uh, in China, Arsenal's games were pulled from the television, that Ozil basically was, was they, they didn't want him appear, appearing anywhere. But I, I suppose what that illustrates is, is, is as much as anything, A, the power of the Chinese market for sport and sports broadcasters and the potential they see in it. Basically, I think it's seen as the, um, where, where the next, next greatest growth is. And on the other side of that is, of course, the power of the Chinese state to, uh, to dictate that growth. And, and it's created, I think, a lot of contradictions and complications w- w- within sport. And, and as you say, this hypocrisy where there isn't that much discussion about it. And, and, and again, summing this up, we did have, until covid until the COVID crisis uh, basically started to change the world, 
at this time last year, there was already talk about how this summer, 2021, FIFA was going to to host their, their new expanded Club World Cup in China. And, and it was going to... And because they basically need huge prize money to attract the biggest clubs to this, to create a tournament on a par with the Champions League, they need a lot of prize money. And, that, and a lot of the talk at the time was that prize money was going to come from Saudi Arabian investors. This all emphasizes that the countries like China, like Russia, but in this case, China use sports washing not just to promote their own message, but to undermine criticism of, of themselves as well, of the country. So it goes to show you the extreme power that something like sports washing has. In the case, and, it's, and it varies from country to country because we've now given examples across from the Middle East off to Russia, off to China, and each with slightly varied interests or stakes at hand or goals overall with this. With this. And I'd like to go into more detail into these specific goals from various countries. And I want to go back to Russia here, circle back to Russia for a moment, because I think it's very interesting how Putin actually, like, we talk about Putin is not looking for any business interests, or it's not, it's not, a, business, it's not a business negotiation or sort of that kind of diplomacy the way it is with Qatar or with the United Arab Emirates. Well, then what is it, Gary, exactly, that Putin is truly interested in? What does he personally achieve? Because he's not going to be around forever. So what is this for his legacy? What is this for the Russia he's trying to create? I, I doubt that Putin uh, is thinking very much about his legacy. It's yes, he's a dictator, but this is not you know classical dictatorship of the twentieth century. Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin—they could you know they could probably have their thoughts about you know the legacy and the future. Putin is far more primitive. It's more like a mafia boss. So it's all about staying in power today. So and surviving tomorrow morning. And uh, what mafia does buys influence. It blackmails, it, it attacks, it kills if necessary. So we, we saw that Putin doesn't hesitate to use, to use brute force, whether against domestic opponents uh, like Nemtsov or Navalny or, you know, elsewhere in the world where he have to make a statement. Carpet bombing Aleppo was just part of, of his message to the world. I, you know, I have my body there, in this case uh, Bashar al-Assad, and I said he would stay and I would do everything to, to protect him. So, um, uh, and... Uh, um, Abramovich experiment that was followed by many other Russian oligarchs and Russian companies was, you know, was a part of this uh, of the plan. It's a, it's a hybrid war against the free world, and to win this hybrid war, you need, you know, you need your agents, you need your infrastructure in the opponent's uh, um, uh, uh, camp, and uh, they succeeded. And it's why it's so difficult now to impose any sanctions on on, on Russia. You, you can see them, just Russia violating every international treaty it signed, you know, it, it spits on every, you know, criticism and nothing happens or it happens so slowly because you have massive lobbying power, whether it's Germany, whether it's uh, the United Kingdom, even in the United States, less than the United States, let, let, let's admit it. But, you know, they, they succeeded in it. You can find the Putin fingerprints. Yeah, speaking about Russian money, trace of Russian money everywhere, you know, from uh, uh, Baltic states to, to San Francisco. And, uh, and that was a part of a plan. And having this kind of influence, you know, just uh, helps to pull the strings that are invisible for the public. It's not, you know, just direct approach. It's not like military attack. But, you know, hybrid war is effective uh, because Putin has access to more resources than probably any individual in, in, in human history. So he can throw billions and billions and billions of dollars buying influence. And he knows it helps him because even if he spends 10 billion, 20 billion dollars on buying these uh, favors, uh, 
uh, soccer, basketball clubs, uh, um, whatever. Just, you know, this is, it's the TV stations, whatever you can ha have your hands on. Um, it still, it pays, it pays uh, uh, off. It pays, you know, it's, it's uh, with, with profit because it helps him to preserve uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that have been stolen in Russia and allocated elsewhere and to protect this. And this is the, this is the core uh, uh, of his power. Uh, he had his deal with with uh, uh, with Russian elite, so you can steal in Russia, you can place money elsewhere in the world, and I guarantee you protection. Many many years ago, I said that the Putin's motto was to rule like Stalin and to live like Abramovich. So that's the that's that's kind of that's kind of the uh, um, uh, dualism that that symboli that symbolizes Putin's mafia regime and uh, and uh, uh, sports washing, you know, proved to be, you know, in terms of this return. It's it's it, it's not a direct return. It's not you know yeah I invested I promoted my company but it's 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 a return in instability of my position in the free world where I have to keep my money. So it's proved to be very effective. That's why you had so many followers. Excellent. It's a form of stability then for for Putin and and uh, and consistency and prolonging it. So. Interestingly, as you use the term mafia, I'm immediately thinking of the Saudi monarchy as well and the way they operate, though they seem to have an overarching goal of, you know, dep uh, uh, independence from oil, you know, like, like, like moving away from their oil dependence, the whole point behind their vision 2030, which they since have been investing in, you know, entertainment and sports, etc. Now, over the past three years, we've seen Saudi really jump into this as they realize, oh, no, our oil supplies are about to run out, which means our money and our lifestyle is about to change. We have to do something about it. Miguel, my question for you is we have now seen in football, yeah, we've seen the UAE get involved, as you've mentioned. We've seen Qatar get involved, as you mentioned. You know, the plenty. we've seen Russia involved. There's going to be plenty more examples to come. Is Saudi any different than those examples? Do you see it as any different? Do you see it as a more harmful example? Or do you see it on the same level as what we're already dealing with? I think it's a very interesting question because it's one, that's something that came up an awful lot in the discussion of the attempted takeover of Newcastle, and even before that, when it had been mooted that they might be interested in buying Manchester United, uh, and I think, I mean, because if you if you compare all the discussion around the Saudi takeover of Newcastle to eleven years prior, when when Abu Dhabi effectively bought Manchester City or or Sheikh Mansour, or whatever you want to phrase it, or the exact links. Um, but all, there was almost no questioning of that. It was like it felt like a much more naive football world, where it was basically it was just seen as kind of um, wealth from the oil wealth from the Middle East. Uh, now, of course, I, I, th I, I don't think that was really challenged until the last few years. Maybe some of that is kind of the spillover from all of the discussion about the Qatar World Cup in 2022. But then from about 2017 on, and I think this is particularly due to the work of uh, people like Nick McGeehan. Um, where there was a lot more focus on what exactly Abu Dhabi wanted with Manchester City, um, and as we've already discussed on the uh, as part of this discussion, um, it was ultimately kind of a form of it's about growing influence, it's about wealth diversification, and also about kind of um, continuing business as normal at the West, but without having questions asked. I mean, one of the arguments you often hear about. Um, about you know justifying say the potential Saudi Arabian takeover of Newcastle is that well maybe it can have a, an effect going the other way maybe it actually improves 
human rights records in these countries. Where in the, whereas, I mean, the, the, the Abu Dhabi example proves that to be absolutely bogus. Uh, you know, as so many academics have pointed out to me, the human rights situation in Abu Dhabi or in the UAE is much worse in 2020 than it was in 2008. Uh, so in that sense, the ownership of Manchester City has had a negligible effect. But on the other side, uh, the, the Abu Dhabi hierarchy have been, have been able to kind of further their business relationships with the West and with the UK to the point that, you know, they're just, you know, part of the language, part of the visibility of football. Um, and, I, and I think maybe with, with the Newcastle Saudi Arabia thing, this is something that, keep, that kept coming up where basically it was seeing that Abu Dhabi are much more sophisticated at this than Saudi Arabia. And it's why there hasn't been the same discussion. Their PR, their PR, um, their, their PR apparatus is just uh, much better at it. And with Saudi Arabia, I think it's just been seen as, as much cruder. But also, I suppose, an added element to that is, whereas kind of for, for pointing to kind of human rights abuse, even, even though this, this should be ludicrous to say, but I think it's true, it can often seem a little bit abstract for people. Whereas with Saudi Arabia, when you can, when you can point to kind of examples like the, the tragic death, or tragic murder of, of Khashoggi, um, or, you know, also capital punishments, it's much more visible for people. And, for that, and in that sense, I think Saudi Arabia was probably seen as, I mean, without using language that's too simplistic, it was probably seen as the big bad in terms of, you know, the, whoever was going to buy, buy a football club next. And it's interesting because I find that uh, there's a lot of similarities with China as well in that China seems to have this, this approach where uh, there's nationalism involved in it. There's business interests involved in it, and it's 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 a little hard to to gauge what's what's next exactly. I find that Saudi Arabia and and the United Arab Emirates it's in, it's it's an easy path to understanding where their their goals lie, their objectives, the way they they go about it. When it comes to China, they they have their hands and their fingers in so many different things at the moment. I can't quite understand the overarching goal, if there even is one. Maybe I'm looking too much into it. Maybe I'm taking an academic lens here. But I see nationalistic fervor. I see pressure to to change international image. I see forms of control. What do you think, Eradi? What do you think is is the primary overarching interest here for, for China? And how do they apply it? I think it's uh, twofold, and I think we could talk about China as in the CCP as a whole and then talk about Xi Jinping as, um, I guess, the lifelong uh, dictator at this point. Um, and I think Xi Jinping, and, I, and unlike Gary was mentioning about Putin, Putin, is that he does want to leave a legacy. He finds it very important that he becomes this leader that took China from, uh, you know, a developing country to a world leader. That's, that's, I think, his end goal, is to make himself seem that he has now taken China and made it 180 and made it grow. Um, and I think that that is actually one of the reasons that the citizens and the country itself also supports this, right? There's a lot of nationalism that's associated with it, as you mentioned. And I think that Xi Jinping really plays into this, saying, you know, you'll see a lot on their media talking about any time the U.S. or uh, other Western countries attack China's human rights standards, uh, China will immediately respond back with, oh, these Western countries don't want China to be included uh, in being a world leader in making conversation and being sitting at the you know table with other leaders and they're consistently uh, spreading this dialogue of 
that uh, it's racism at the end of the day. They're constantly playing into that, that that they're not including China in the conversation, even though China should be in the conversation and they're deserving of it. And you'll see this in, um, and one of the examples kind of going back to the MBA, when Daryl Morey spoke out about it, um, one of the, uh, in CCTV, they specifically gave a very clear threat where it said that Chinese rocket fans are first Chinese. We love Chinese red more than the rockets red. Morey, this time you really fouled. If you foul, you have to pay the price. And what's the price? The price is the Chinese market. The price is the access to the billion popul- billions of pop billions of Chinese people that are, that are there that that now this whole market is going to be closed off to them. And they, they create this very close, tight-knit between these two things, right? The market that, uh, that people want to get into because it, it's very, very uh, economically beneficial. It's very beneficial to be in China right now just because of their mass populations where people are able to afford a lot and uh, are willing to pay and willing to get into the, these interests. And at the same time, they also requ- have this requirement that you have to be um, supporting of the CCP. So now these... Uh, the general population and the Chinese Communist Party are now inseparable. They're um, they're one, and um, if you insult one, then it means immediately that you're insulting another, which isn't true, right? These are two completely thing different things. When we're talking about human rights, when we're talking about government policies, we're talking about the CCP and the injustices that they're doing, not the Chinese people as a whole. But what the CCP has done is created this connect to that if they insult us, they're insulting all Chinese people, which is completely false. And I think uh, they use that uh, to continue to strengthen nationalism, and they use that to create, uh, to try to put themselves at the table, but at the same time, make it sure that it's on their own terms. And when I say they, the CCPs. It's it's very interesting what you say there about that kind of, that counter argument from China about, you know, the accusation of racism, because it immediately made me think of something when, because basically that that, that becomes quite a useful defense for them and a quite preemptive defense. But immediately made me think of, in the summer of 2019, when um, the president of the Spanish League, Javier Tebas, he was talking, I suppose, about the disruptive effect of, um, of, of, of money in football, with that money particularly coming from Qatar with Paris Saint-Germain and Abu Dhabi with Manchester City. And man- I just have the quotes here. Uh, Manchester City's chairman, uh, Khaldun Al-Mubarak, who is, you know, some people call him the de, de-, de facto prime minister of Abu Dhabi, uh, and he's, he's chairman of the club, but um, he, he, he spoke about how uh, his exact lines were, um, sorry, he said there's something deep, well, he, 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 talk, he talked about kind of, you know, Tebas bringing up the money behind Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City and said, there's something deeply wrong in bringing ethnicity into the conversation. This is just ugly. The way he's combining teams because of ethnicity, I find that very disturbing, to be honest. When, of course, that's not actually what's happened. Um, and it's, but, uh, but even beyond that, one thing, so say when you're, when you're writing an article basically about these topics, one of the most common responses you get from supporters of these clubs, and, and, and that's worth going into in itself, but one of the most common responses you get is, oh, this is, this is racism against the, uh, who's allowed to invest in football or certain types of, certain types of people who invest in football. And, and again, it just all feels a, a preemptive defense to kind of deflect from the, the, the real criticism is here and, and, and it's interesting how supporters i suppose just parrot these lines because that, that that's something else that's happening here by tapping into the emotional connection people have with their clubs or their teams they're basically just 
by buying almost unwitting public support. And and, and people are and it it does mean if you if you go on Twitter, people people like thousands of people doing unpaid work basically in terms of public relations for these uh, uh, the, the, the states. And I, I do find that. that's what makes it really insidious I think and it's really such an unfortunate and almost tragic um, consequence of this well you you raise a very very great point there about about how fans handle these things and the role sort of both fans journalists everybody has to play in this and how fans they seem to not understand the subliminal messaging going on and end up presenting this sort of free PR so I want to go further into this and talk about now that we know what how sports washing works and how it affects the fans, how it affects people and how all these dictatorships win from it, what can we do about it? What are the solutions? I mean, Gary, you had mentioned that you don't really think sanctions against Putin or against Russia work very well. So if not sanctions, then what's an example? I think of sanctions sometimes because very recently... The UFC was known to have ties with uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the dictator in Chechnya, Chechnya being a republic within Russia, and he was actually sanctioned by the United States. His specifically his MMA fight club and his sport and his football team both were sanctioned, and that's really impacted him to the point that he's very very irritated about this because he can no longer present himself, update his image, etc. But does that apply to you know the the bigger guys? Because when we talk about Kadyrov, he's a lot more localized. He's a domestic force. Does that really apply to a Putin? Does that apply to Saudi, etc.? What do you think, Gary? Uh, I did not say that sanctions did not work. I said that the sanctions, you know, were not implemented at the level where they could hurt Putin because there are sanctions and sanctions. And uh, what we have now, what is called sanctions, it's, um, it's, uh, it's more than lip service but it's less than real sanctions that could uh, could force people around Putin to start thinking about the consequence of their actions. Um, so sanctions against Roman Abramovich, that's, that's something that, you know, we have, we have been calling for uh, um, um, for a long time. Uh, just, you know, do that. I mean, you have a long list of people. Usmanov, that's another Russian billionaire, you know, with uh, an interest in, in, in uh, football. So, um, uh, there's a lot that can be done, but this, you know, that's, that's a, not a decision that stays only with politicians. This is also about public. And it's very important for public to recognize that this is not just money and money coming from another source. And there's no element of racism or nationalism saying these people cannot invest, these people can invest. It's not about the ethnicity of money. It's about, uh, um, I would say, it's the moral quality of money. If it's a well-earned money, it can come from anywhere. But if this money comes from the source that we know is owned by a dictator, by people who have been, who not just committed crimes, but they keep committing crimes as, you know, as this money being used to buy their influence and to clear their names in the eyes of millions and millions of sport fans, that's another story. And until we can convey the message to, to the Western public at large, for people to look at the consequences of their inaction, or in some cases, their action of defending these uh, human rights abusers, nothing will change. Because NBA or Premier League or uh, um, French, uh, Italian, German uh, clubs, they look for, at the end of the day, for benefits. It's just, it's, it, are, those, those clubs are just commercial entities and they have to make money at the end of the day. Um, uh, and they see no downside. And that's, that's what's happening with NBA. 
they all are proactive in America because they know that American public, you know, wants them to be proactive. Good. How about being 10% that proactive, attacking heinous crimes that have nothing, you know, to compare with, with injustice in America? So the moment they will see that the money actually could, 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 uh, could go down, the moment that they could see the advertising contracts could be in jeopardy, that's, uh, that, that will, then we'll talk business. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much money China could bring in, if American advertising market, European advertising market will start pointing out at the uh, amo- at, at these amoral things and will will you know put put this dilemma on the table, I think everything everything will change. And by the way, that will also affect Chinese, Saudis, Russians, and others because they will see ah, it's no longer the same the same uh, 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 game. Because with all Russian and Chinese and Saudi money, the moment you know you will look at American advertising market and all the contracts that these players they, they, they these these players are earned there, it could be a different story. But we need we need public to start looking at at at, at the human rights abuses in in the countries that we are we are discussing here today, and that's not the end of the list, of course, uh, and and to and to convey the message to, to their sport heroes not to, not to be indifferent to the suffering, uh, sufferings of, of uh, uh, people around the world. Well, there's an interesting, just, just on exactly what you're talking about, I, I've already heard stories about certain big-name footballers who have refused multi-million pound sponsorships from Saudi Arabia, not linked to clubs, but just basically these kind of, you know, to, to, tourism contracts that, uh, and I've heard, of, I've heard that some have rejected it basically because of these exact concerns because if, if they go into business like that then you know it will affect them in other areas people will look at them negatively and you would, you would hope I suppose maybe that rep- represents the start of a bigger com- conversation although sometimes it can be disheartening to see the number of kind of football figures or sporting figures who you would otherwise look up to and they still kind of have you know some you know financial relationships or deals with, you know, questionable interests or states in that way. I mean, basically, you only have to look at the way so many football clubs go to, uh, go to Abu Dhabi or Dubai uh, for training camps and all the rest of it. Um, but in terms of, I mean, just, I suppose, before addressing what, what we can do, I think it's also worth mentioning in, ter- in terms of the supporters and, and, and that power that we see, I do have a certain sympathy for support. And I, I remember when, when Saudi Arabia were trying to buy Newcastle, I remember hearing that one of the reasons they picked Newcastle and why it actually became more attractive than uh, you know, a global behemoth like Manchester United was because, specifically because Newcastle have been starved of success for the last few years, uh, that they haven't won a major trophy since the 60s or haven't won a, you know, a domestic trophy for even longer. So suddenly there's all sorts of goodwill immediately purchased if, if, if uh, these new owners... Deliver, deliver success in that way, but you know, buying all sorts of loyalty, and from that, and the, I suppose there is a certain sympathy uh, for supporters in that sense. So, like, you know, for you've been supporting your club for a decade; it's a huge part of your life; it's part of your identity. And then suddenly, that identity is complicated because it's not just a football club anymore; it's also a, an apparatus for a state. And I think that that, that I think it's, it's probably natural people get defensive about that. But of course, that's why. I think media discussion needs to be more prominent. And this is something I remember wrestling a lot with. Um, when, like, say, when Manchester City won the treble in England in May 2019, and they completed it by absolutely thrashing Watford 6-0 in the final. And I remember kind of thinking to myself during that game, um, 
should I really be, just the scale of this is a bit, there's, there's, something, there's something different there. I'm not sure I should be reporting this as a straight big team beats little team and wins by 6-0. I think we, ha- we have to go to the next level and discuss what this all means, uh, which is essentially what the whole point of the Manchester City project is. And I think I mean thinking in terms of, you know, as the, we, we, the media are probably inadvertently doing the job of, of these you know, regimes or interests if we just basically mention this as sport as usual without really referencing the kind of point behind it or referencing the interests or, or what exactly is going on here. And it's, and it's least, there even should even always be a disclaimer. Exactly, exactly. And it, and it's into, but, but again, pointing to what we're talking about, usually with, just as an example, usually with, say, Qatar and PSG or Manchester City and Abu Dhabi, I usually always make a point about pointing to the, the level of investment and where the investment has come from. In every and even if even if you put in one sentence, you get huge backlash for that because you know because of all the reasons we're t- we're talking about here. So, as an activist yourself, you see this this fan fan reaction, and you see how uh, Miguel used some fantastic examples, specifically Newcastle United, when you have fans really just you know begging and dreaming and desperate for for a win and desperate to see success. And they're willing to overlook anything else, this sort of level of willful ignorance, where they know there are atrocities involved and they know there's dark money, etc. involved in this, but they don't care because it means victory and euphoria for them. What sort of activism and outreach actually works to, you know, alter this fan perception? How, how can we move forward in that sense? I think there's uh, two things. Obviously, a lot of this does come from ignorance. So you'll see a lot of, you know, for example, with the whole NBA situation, again, a lot of them claimed ignorance. I didn't know about the situation, so I can't really speak on it. So a lot of it is just making sure that the public is knowledgeable on it. Whether if they choose to be ignorant, at least it's in the back of their minds and they know enough. So talking about it more, making sure that it's always a part of the conversation and mentioned. So journalists and people who are reporting on sports are constantly at least giving that caveat. Like, yes, we're talking about this, the Olympics, for example, happening in Beijing in 2022, but just remember that this is happening right next door. And just making sure that while people see this beautiful image in one hand, they also realize all of the things that come along with that. Um, and then the other aspect, I think, would be to making sure by is by making sure that businesses associated people who are spokespersons, these athletes that are coming out and um, trying to vein this trying to promote these events, whether it's uh, the NBA within China or the Olympics, um, just making sure that they are taking that leadership role. And I think one of the biggest parts of activism is making sure that these uh, role models essentially are making sure that their voices are being put to this. So we're constantly reaching out and making sure that whether it's the IOC or whether it's the Olympic athletes or the sponsors, whether it's businesses like Nike or athletes like LeBron, they are at least going to say something about it and make sure that their voices aren't being put to nothing, that their voices aren't being used uh, for the Chinese Communist Party or the dictatorship that they're uh, working with, but used to at least enlighten those people. I think especially in the situation with China, since the people's nationalism and the people's thoughts are so important, 
And the fact that historically, the U.S. and Western countries took the approach to China that the more we interact with them, the more we uh, the more that we're allowed into China's borders, the more we can change people's minds. And we've kind of failed at it, really. We've failed completely in trying to interact with China and trying to change their minds to making sure that human rights is a big priority of theirs. We've failed at it. And I think the leaders that are now that do now have access to China need to start saying these things or at least pulling out a little bit. There's people like Mark Cuban who have said, I'm going to continue doing business with China as usual. There's people, you know, like LeBron that says, oh, I don't really know about it. So I'm just going to continue what I'm doing as of now. There's Thomas Bach who claims we're apolitical. Uh, so the Olympics are apolitical. But if these people started pulling out, that that would enlighten the people within China, enlighten Chinese citizens to saying, hey, why are we being deprived from these amazing things? What What's going on here? What's happening? And that would end up making them question uh, what their government's doing and what their governments are acting. Because at the end of the day, without the Chinese population being involved in this conversation, the Chinese government isn't going to change and the genocide's gonna continue happening. And without role models, especially from the West who claim to you know really support humanity and equality, without them speaking out, that mindset isn't going to change. In order to actually reach these businesses and these fans, how do you really amplify this message? Now, I, I specify to both of you, because Gary, you as the chairman of the Human Rights Foundation, how do you approach something like this? And Miguel, what role do you see media in in, in activism? So I used to, when I grew up as, as, as a journalist, I saw myself as a distinctly separate from an activist. The more I touch on these topics, the more I see myself as an educational role. Do you share this understanding of this? Do you share this activist mentality? How do you go about this? Well, I think it's, it's, inter it's interesting you draw. I mean, I, I would be along your line of thinking. But also, I think what reflects that as well is, I mean, traditionally with issues like this, with, say... Uh, and, th and this goes back even, I think, to maybe some of the uh, the absence of discussion about around Manchester City in 2008, or, or even, you know, any, any example you want to think of. It would always be seen as a kind of a separation between the kind of, say, news pages or international news and sport, whereas they'd cover that side of it, we'd cover the uh, just the, the football matches or the actual sport. When... I, I don't. I don't think, and I and I think you can see it from just the way uh, sports coverage has changed in the last few years. Uh, I, I don't think that applies anymore. And I, but and one of the reasons it doesn't apply, of course, because we're not just reporting on kind of the sporting results of the rest of it. What we're also what we also have to report on is, and what is central to all of this, is the importance of sport. To, to society. I mean, that, that, that's why we're even covering them in the first place, because of how, how much this all means to people. Hence, we need to be covering the issues around these teams and whether they're being used, whether they're being, you know, the exact kind of nature of, uh, of people wanting to buy clubs or influences in football. And I think, I, I do have to say, I think that, that is something that has really accelerated in the last decade. And I feel sports coverage has grown up a lot in that regard over the past while. But obviously, uh, I, I think more evolution is required as well. Uh, and this is something that should be, and I, I, again, I think you, you'd have to argue, it should be front and centre, really. And, and, and on that, actually, the Qatar World Cup is going to provide quite an interesting experiment and maybe challenge for sport as well. And that, I mean, and, and, and Rush was along these lines as well. 
you know, but, but I think maybe Qatar is on, even on another level because there's been so much discussion about how, you know, the construction of stadiums and the, and the, the, uh, the death of uh, migrant workers in general, in general construction in Qatar. I mean, so even if you say when, when Liverpool went to Qatar for the Club World Cup uh, just over a year ago, there was all sorts of discussion about whether they could go to an, to an hotel or whether the team could stay in a hotel that is considered ethical. And they, they did receive advice from human rights organisations on this. And I think that's going to, it's going to be interesting to see how sports coverage covers uh, the Qatari World Cup in that regard and how much we kind of just recover the great show, which I suppose the, uh, the Qatari state would want, and how much the, the great show is actually going to be used to, uh, to also cover all the connected issues with it. Because the two should be interlinked. And I think that's certainly one way the media should be helping here. And I think it touches on what you're saying in, ter- in terms of kind of helping people understand. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, you talked a lot about 2022 Qatar World Cup. And the previous World Cup was in Russia. <laughs> and then it's just, you know, it, 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 it was a symbol of corruption. You know, there's so much money has been stolen. You know, they just, you know, they, most of the constructions already falling apart. You know, it's okay. I'm sure Qatar, the quality in Qatar will be higher. But, but again, the, the, the principle is, 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 is the same. So they, Putin bought it. So they, they, they knew how to how to buy uh, these favors or the, the bits the bits from in, uh, from international sports organizations and you had the FIFA officials you know just hugging kissing and just you know yeah by the way they just again they, they don't care you know football chess because the man is the former deputy uh, prime minister uh, Arkady Dvorkovich, the right hand man of former president Medvedev who was the head of the organizing. Um, mm, mm, Committee for World Cup in Russia. Now he is the he is the president of FIDE, International Chess Federation. At the end of the day, it's, it's they they look at this at, at every every institution, whether it's basketball, football, chess, is is a way to spread spread their influence. And uh, going back to to the repercussions, to uh, the, what is the what is what is the payoff? Did this Disney pay any price for shooting Mulan in Xinjiang? No, no. So it's the so it's as if though know, it's we we have actual genocide happening in 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 Xinjiang now we have you know massive violations of human rights just in in countries we can you know we don't have t- enough time in the pro- in the program you know to start even counting these countries uh, uh, even Hashogi it's 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 even by medieval standards that's one of the worst worst uh, 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 killing murder. Ordered by 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 head of the state or techno, that's de facto head of the state, uh, um, and uh, and we have you know enough evidence that he most likely was even watching it live, but you know the it's, as, as you probably aware HRF sponsored the movie The Dissident, uh, uh, produced by Brian Fogel about about Khashoggi uh, and his fight and his his tragic tragic death, and we couldn't find a media outlet that was ready to promote it. So this is this is a power of power of Saudi's money. So it's 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 very important for us to mobilize the public. It's not just you know one-off event you know Liverpool in Qatar or uh, you know someone goes someone goes to to a country where you have to be cautious not to be seen by you know by having you know it's it's a war hug with 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 with, with a dictator, but it's about the um, overall rejection. Of the money that's coming from these from these sources, this dark money, money that is 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 earning blood and tears of innocent people. 
And I'll say, because I believe we are out of time, I think that's a great way to conclude this uh, this panel. Thank you all very much for your wonderful insight. It was a pleasure moderating this panel.